The title of the message this morning, as you can see, is The Greatest Message from the Greatest Teacher. Subtitle, but are we ready to listen? Hold your finger there in Matthew chapter 5. We're not going to read much of uh, the actual Sermon on the Mount this morning, but we are going to spend quite a bit of time in, quite a bit of time in James chapter 1. So kind of have your finger in both places. But let me just say, first of all, how excited I am, really honored and, and just thankful that I have the opportunity to serve as your interim pastor for this season. I'm looking forward to, to seeing what God's going to do here, how he's going to glorify himself. I've already had the chance to get to know the staff a little bit. I'm looking forward to working with them. I, I look forward to getting to know you as a church family. I don't know you yet as a church family. Just don't make any pretense about that, but I look forward to getting to know you, and I hope uh, that I get to know as many of you as I can personally as well during this season. So would you please stand, uh, not stand, but would you please join me in prayer? Father, we are uh, excited and thankful to be in your house today. We know your spirit is present with us because you have promised to be where two or more gathered. So we pray today that you would, Father, take these words, this message, and root it in your holy word, Father, and speak to our hearts, enlighten our hearts, focus our minds, Father, on things that are above, that we might leave this place challenged and changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we're going to begin today a, a series of messages on what few would argue is the greatest message ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And of course, that preacher is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that sermon is the Sermon on the Mount. There are no other religious teachings in the history of civilization which compare and have garnered the kind of attention that the Sermon on the Mount has garnered down through the years. Philosophers and political leaders and, and personalities alike, those who have rejected outright Jesus Christ as the, as the Son of God have nonetheless admired the Sermon on the Mount and sought to adhere to at least some of what is taught within. And certainly the centrality, the significance of this section of Scripture that is, is had for the church and for individual Christians down through the centuries is undeniable. We're just a brief overview of the book of Matthew. There are five great discourses, and the Sermon on the Mount is the first of those chapters 5 through 7, and then we have chapter 10, which we have the, the charge of Jesus to his disciples, you remember, before he sent them out, and then chapter 13, we have some of our favorite parables, the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, the parable of the mustard seed, the pearl of great price, chapter 18, we have the parable of the lost sheep, the unforgiving servant, other assorted ethical teachings, and then finally the last of those Discourses and it's found in chapters 24 and 25 where we have the signs of the end of the age, the parable of the ten virgins, of the talents, and then Jesus' words regarding the final judgment. And then within the Sermon on the Mount itself, there are three basic types of material. Of course, we're all familiar with the Beatitudes or the, the blessings of, of uh, declaration of blessings that he gives there. We're looking at, secondly, the ethical admonitions that Jesus offers in the Sermon on the Mount salt and light that we cover it right after the Beatitudes and then third the contrast between Jesus' ethical teachings and the prevailing traditions of the day you have heard that it was said but I say to you those lessons from the, from the Mount contain some of the most memorable some of the most formidable some of the most uncompromising demands that Jesus ever uttered yet it begins with what? it begins with the good news blessed are you 
the people that no one in that culture or any other culture would have seen as blessed are especially so, Jesus says. He tells us that God's grace will be poured out on those who mourn, on those who are poor in spirit, upon the meek, upon those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, upon the merciful, upon the pure in heart, upon the peacemakers, upon those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He rejoiced and be glad, Jesus says, when you are persecuted because of righteousness, because great is your reward in heaven. But along with those wonderful blessings, and they are wonderful, we're cautioned not to take for granted the grace of God in this passage. Jesus instructs those who respond to the grace of the blessings that are here just how we should live. He, in effect, says, now God has blessed you. Go forth and live in this manner. Can you imagine being there in that crowd on on, on the mount? How astonished we might have been when Jesus said that unless their righteousness surpassed that of the sanctimonious scribes and the pious Pharisees, they had no chance of entering the kingdom of heaven. Surely they would have gasped when he said, You've heard it said, but I say to you. that Their hearts must have leapt into their throats when he rousted them from their moral complacency by saying that even looking at a woman in lust is tantamount to having an affair with her. He must have ignited an incomprehension when he said, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. They must have roared with laughter at his caricature of a person with a, with a board in his eye trying to take the speck out of someone else's eye. Theologians have interpreted and reinterpreted this passage down through the centuries trying to find out what applies to us and what might not apply to us. But let me begin our study of this amazing sermon by simply stating that after we've made every attempt We can to find some kind of ambiguous loophole that permits us to to rationalize maybe or water down what the Sermon on the Mount teaches. The only conclusion we can arrive at it is Jesus gave us this teaching so that it would be obeyed, not merely admired. We're to take the commands found in the sermon with the utmost seriousness. Jesus considered them essential, foundational for all those who were citizens of of his father's kingdom. The great General Omar Bradley in a 1948 Armistice Day address said something worth repeating. He said, We have grasped the mystery of the Adam and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. Beloved, let me just say, we, we reject, we ignore, we water down the Sermon on the Mount only to our great peril. And that is where we find ourselves in this day, if we're honest, isn't it? In great peril as a country, 180 degrees, headed wide open, 180 degrees away from our roots, which were in Scripture, despite what some might say. In great peril as a church, tasked with the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. And now we have, sadly, more churches closing every year than we do have opening As children of God charged with being salt and light in a dark and rotting world where many have no desire to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church family, nonetheless, 
The Sermon on the Mount is the unconditioned expression of God's will for how we are to live as kingdom citizens. It's the charter. It's the, it's the guide for Christian living for us as His disciples. And again, to gloss over the, the Sermon on the Mount, to water it down, is done to our great peril. Despite the protest of those who say it's impractical to live what is taught here, the Sermon on the Mount is not a charter of despair. Just to illustrate, we might compare the instructions of Jesus to the restrictions placed on a diabetic child. To guard that child's health, what would we do? We'd say he could, you, know, you could no longer just go to the fridge anytime you want and, and, and rate it. You've got to guard your diet carefully. So Twinkies and donuts and ice cream covered with whipped topping and, and, and chocolate syrup, those are out. But let's just say that one day you catch that child coming out of the kitchen with chocolate syrup all over his face. What, what, what are you going to do as a parent? Well, the parents could say, they could say, you know, we gave the rules a try, but they didn't work. The child disobeyed, but you know, it was probably too much to expect of little Johnny after all. So let's just forget about the rules and let little Johnny chow down on whatever he wants to anytime he wants to. So one option, though it sounds absurd, would be for the parents to throw out the rules. But of course, the consequences would be potentially, possibly, probably lethal for their child. Another even more far-fetched approach would be to keep the rules and throw out the child. The parents could say, well, Johnny broke the rules, so he's out of here. We're through with Johnny. More logically, the parents could decide to keep the standards and keep little Johnny. Beloved, that is precisely what our Heavenly Father has done. It's vital to understand that what Jesus offers His disciples to us in the Sermon on the Mount are not oppressive dictates. No, as the great physician, He's prescribed these things, these guiding principles for our well-being. Jesus knows each one of us in this room individually. He knows our faults and our foibles, but He is also intensely aware of our needs. And the principles of the Sermon on the Mount grow out of those needs. But if we fail to take the prescription that He offers, it can't help us. Anger, lust, hatred, revenge, hypocrisy, greed, anxiety, those things and more that Jesus addresses in the sermon only serve to weaken and destroy us. In church saying we can be sure, we know for a fact that these things are alive and well out in the world. But we can also know for sure that Jesus wants His bride, His children, not to fall victim to that fatally flawed philosophy. If we interpret what's contained in the Sermon on the Mount as prescriptions to help us recover and then to grow in our moral and spiritual health, then we can only conclude that we must strive to obey them. We shouldn't be deterred about questions about whether it's feasible or not or whether it's practical or not. When I was in the Army, one of the things I enjoyed most was going to the target range. And listen, I was only an average marksman at best, except when it came, strangely, to the longer range targets. They were at 300 meters, and I was better at hitting those targets than I was at the ones closer. But some of the guys struggled. They just couldn't hit that distant target. And I still remember my platoon sergeant at the time, and I'll clean up his language, but he said to one of those soldiers, well, well, you know, I guess we can always ask the enemy to move a little closer so we have a better chance of hitting him. 
Beloved, the only legitimate thing to shoot at in combat or on the range is the target. You can't say, well, since I can't hit the target, I'm going to shoot at something closer. The problem with the practicality of this teaching didn't come up with Matthew. Not when it was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen these words. It only came later for the church and for Christians. It was simply assumed that these commands were not only possible, but they, that they must be obeyed. So first of all, we obey these commands because of the authority of the one who issues them. As a teacher, Jesus is revealed as the one who has greater authority than the scribes. We see that at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. He's seen as the one who's even greater than Moses. He said, you have heard, and he's talking about the law there, you have heard that it was said, but I now say to you. So Jesus erases all ambiguity and closes all the loopholes, including those that are routinely recognized today, and he instead raises the bar with regard to the law and, and his assistance on a greater righteousness. As Emmanuel, Jesus has come to us to, to fulfill the law and the prophets and to teach you and I how to live, to empower us to live in the obedience to Him. Sadly, I, much of today's preaching fails to emphasize obedience through personal holiness. There's a, there's a lot of attention given to the grace that pardons us. And beloved, the grace that we know as His children is amazing grace, just like we sung, no doubt about it. But, but often we see teaching and preaching that speaks little of the grace that empowers us for holiness, for obedience. We hear about the power of grace to forgive our sins, but not much about the power of grace to kill our sin. We hear about the blood Jesus shed to kill sin, but little about the power of the blood that is meant to enable us to walk in holy obedience. And yet Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who has called you is holy, so also you be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. No ambiguity there. And if, I call, and if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what, church? With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And I wish we had time to fully unpack that glorious passage. But, beloved, let me just say this. Jesus paid the ransom which freed us from our old ways, our old conduct. He bought our transfer from feudal ways to holy conduct with His blood. There is an unbroken connection between the sin-bearing work of Christ on the cross and the sin-killing work of the Christian. Between Christ's canceling of sin and our conquering of sin. We need to hear about the grace that saves, yes and absolutely. But we also need to hear about the grace that goes on saving us, conforming us, molding us, shaping us to the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So yes, obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is possible, not perfectly for sure, but make no mistake about it. 
We are nevertheless to strive for perfect obedience. It will avail us little if we aim for a closer target. We obey these commands of Jesus because of the authority of the one who issues them. We should also obey these commands because we will one day answer to Jesus and give an account. Jesus sits, the Scripture tells us, as He begins to teach His disciples there on the mount. But one day He's going to sit on His glorious throne to reign. He's going to be the judge in the last day, and many are going to cry out to Him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in Your name, and Your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then He's going to say to those who didn't do the will of the Father, Depart from Me, for I never knew You. Beloved, our ultimate destiny is His children. Therefore, rest in our relationship with Jesus Christ and our obedience to the words of Christ, which always align with the will of the Father. And the reward for obedience, we're going to see this over and over again in the sermon, is acceptance into the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to see this as well. The end result for unrepentant disobedience is sadly final destruction. But let us never forget that the Sermon on the Mount is addressed to the fallen, not the faultless. We're going to fail and fall at times, and when we do, we must simply be quick to confess and repent and to pray for forgiveness for our sins and for fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit and empowerment that we might be obedient going forward. Our only hope, ultimately, is the steadfast love and abundant mercy and sovereign grace of our Father. Like many of us today, the folks Jesus spoke to on that day there on the mount were searching for something with substance. They were, as are so many in our day, I believe, hungry for dynamic and relevant words for their lives. That they desperately sought a word that would make a genuine difference in in their lives on a day-to-day basis, as I believe many do today. Something that would truly touch their hearts and change their minds. They, like, like you and I, didn't need more personal opinions, however expert. They didn't crave more rambling ivory tower dictates from the mouths of the hypocritical religious leaders of the day. They wanted a pure, relevant, transformational message they could appropriate for their lives right then, and they didn't have to wait for long. As we look forward to studying the words of this great message, words that are steeped in wisdom, words that are powerful, words that are rooted in love and given with grace and and alive with relevance, we need to understand something. We need to understand that it it is entirely possible to read, to hear, to study the greatest sermon ever delivered and yet not allow us, allow it to shape us and mold us one iota. You see, as those of you who garden well know, unless the soil is prepared to receive the seed, the seed will never penetrate the ground, take root, and bear fruit. Well, certainly you and I don't want to waste our time, do we, as we go through the Sermon on the Mount all these weeks ahead. So so what can we do to make sure that we hear these teachings and we apply and obey these teachings? so that we receive the blessings and the benefits of the most potent, life-changing words Jesus perhaps ever spoke. The couple of things we need to do is we consider our capacity to hear the Word in a way that changes us. And, and James chapter 1, verses 19 through 25 will go a long way to help assist us. So would you now please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Again, we're in James chapter 1. 
I'll have it on the screen, but if you're in your Bible, that would be wonderful. James chapter 1, beginning in verse uh, 19, where James writes, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Heavenly Father, as we continue into your word, and now in this passage in James, we, we pray that you would speak to us freshly, with, even though it's a familiar passage, Father, that you'd bring a fresh word to our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Sounds like I'm fixing to preach sermon number two, doesn't it? In a way, it is. First thing we see in our text here is that we need to develop an attentive heart. We need to be prepared and open to hearing the truth. We're talking about preparing our hearts and our minds to receive the most powerful sermon ever preached by the most powerful preacher that ever preached. So we need to be prepared and open to hearing the truth and quick to hear or quick to listen speaks of a readiness to hear, a readiness to listen. Yet it is possible to hear and not listen. We do it all the time. I can be watching a sports program or, or the news and Vicki will walk into the room and she'll be talking to me about this or that. And, and though I hear her voice, I'm not tuned in. I'm not tuned in to what she's saying or at least that's what she claims happens sometimes. <laughs> the, the, the physical act of hearing is an amazing gift that we who still have it probably take for granted, but just ask someone whose hearing is deteriorated or who's lost their hearing how much they miss it. But James is not talking here about the integral, intricate details of, of hearing whereby, whereby the words as sound waves reach our ears. Rather, he's talking about listening for what God is saying to us through His Word. So quick to hear, quick to listen describes an attentive heart, listening closely, intently for what God has to say. You see, we can, we can hear His Word and yet not really hear it. That's why Jesus was always talking about having ears to hear. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says, pay attention to what you hear. Mark chapter 4, verse 24. In Luke chapter 8, verse 18, He says, take care then how you hear. So, beloved, we are not only to focus on the truth as revealed in Scripture, yes, but we must acclimate our attitude to listening to the truth as revealed in Scripture. Well, what are some of the things that James says can prevent us from hearing? James first says we must be slow to speak. And one reason many of us don't listen well is that we're too busy trying to decide what we're going to say next. We're too busy trying to do all the talking. And that's true when it comes to our conversations with God. It's true when it comes to our conversations with a brother or sister through whom God might be trying to speak to us. I confess that I'm guilty of this. Far too often. I believe a lot of preachers are. 
But you know, you and I need to remember that God gave us two ears and one mouth, and that ought to say more to us than He was trying to make it easy for us to wear glasses. There's an old story about a young man who approached the great philosopher Socrates. He wanted to be taught to be an effective orator. In the initial meeting with Socrates, he began to speak, and it soon became apparent to Socrates that this brother really liked to hear himself talk. So he rambled on and on until finally Socrates put his hand over his mouth and said, Young man, I'm going to have to charge you double. To which the young man asked why, and Socrates replied, Because I have to teach you two lessons. One, the science of holding your tongue, and two, the science of using it correctly. So, beloved, we need to be quick to listen. Another truth James points out here is that we need to be slow to anger. Simply put, we need to, we need to calm down. We often need just to relax a little bit. And it's so true that we can get really angry about what we're hearing or what we think we're hearing, so much so that we stymie the ability to hear what's actually being said, which applies again to hearing from the Word of God or to hearing from a brother or sister through whom God might want to speak. But it's especially true when it comes, I believe, to a confronting, convicting, relevant word from God. If we don't slow down and calm down and allow God to communicate His Word to us, even and especially when that Word is not exactly what we want to hear, it's not altogether pleasant to our ears, we risk never hearing it all. We need to keep our anger in check and calm down. Quick to listen, slow to speak. And then the final truth James shares with us in verse 21 is that we need to develop a clean heart. James urges us to persist in getting all the junk out of our lives. That word, Greek word translated filth or filthiness, interestingly comes from a root word meaning earwax. But what James is talking about here is sin. Could it be he's saying that sin is like earwax, that it can thwart our ability to hear from others, from God, that it might stop our ability to hear? We know the Bible teaches us that, that sin divides our hearts from God's heart. Isaiah says in Isaiah 50 verse 5, The Lord has opened my ear. Could it be that God sometimes has to convict us through the power of the Holy Spirit to clean the wax out of our ears, so to speak, so that we can hear what He and others have to say to us. So we need to develop an attentive heart, and then we need to develop a teachable spirit. How do we go about accepting the Word? A couple of points that James makes here. One is that we're to accept it with humility, receive with meekness, with humility, the implanted Word, he says in verse 21. When we think about anger, we, we can't help but think about how connected anger is to pride. Plain and simple, we, we, we too often do not want to hear from God because we kind of think we know what He's going to say and what that's going to mean for us, action-wise or inaction-wise. Beloved, we need to cultivate an attitude of teachability if we're going to hear what God has to say to us. Paul tells us that in humility, consider others better than yourself. Sometimes a brother or sister has a word from us, and we're not humble enough to yield to hear that word. Jesus tells us that whoever humbles himself will be exalted in Matthew 23. In verse 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are the meek, the humble, the gentle. Humility is absolutely indispensable when it comes to hearing the word of God and accepting it. And that involves more than simply hearing the word. 
We're to welcome it. We're to embrace it with open arms. The first steps toward welcoming the Word, toward embracing the Word, occurred when we humble ourselves and were teachable enough for God to communicate with us. Here's a revelation for you. Did you know that there are some people who think they know everything? You know, it comes as a shock. There's some people out there like that. None of us, of course. None of us. But there are folks like that. Maybe even some folks in, in, in the church. I'm talking about the greater church. In fact, I, I, would, I would suggest to you that it's fairly common in some church settings. I don't know what there is about coming to know Christ that does this to people, but, it, but it's incredible. Some Christians are saved only for a short time. They're babes in Christ, but they feel like they've already arrived. I've followed the Lord for 53 years. I've been pastoring for 34 years. And I found that the more I learn about Jesus and the Bible, the more I realize there is to know. I, I, I sometimes feel like I've just scratched the surface of the depths of God's ways. And that I will never fully understand His ways. He says, for just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so His ways are higher than my ways, and His thoughts higher than my thoughts. But beloved, if in our walk we hope to grow and to grasp the deep things of God, we need to develop a teachable attitude. Without that teachable spirit, we will remain mired in the mud in our spiritual walk. Beloved, there are none of us who are there yet. We're all growing in Christ. Paul said that he hadn't got there yet. And if he hadn't got there, I know I haven't, and you haven't either. Paul said, I've not attained. I press on. But we need to cultivate a teachable spirit and be open to what God wants to say and do in our lives. And may, maybe what we in the church need to do if we hope to make an impact on our community and beyond, is to get rid of some of the things that we think we know. Now, I'm talking along the lines of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard, but I say to you. Sometimes what may need to happen for real growth to occur is that we must unlearn some things. Things that are rooted in the traditions of men. Things that are rooted in personal preference rather than the Word of God legalistic requirements that are weighing us down so that we can be taught anew and afresh because we've gotten stuck in the mud of all we think we know. The concept of accepting the Word has an implication in the original language of showing hospitality. It deals with how we receive others, how we accept others into our homes. And James is using it here to speak of how we receive the Word, how we accept the Word into our hearts, into our lives. Beloved, we must listen and receive, embrace the Word of God into our lives and let God do what God intends to do with it. An attentive heart, a teachable spirit, and then an obedient walk. There we go. I'll get in the right spot in a minute. What most of us Christians do is we stop at the point of hearing the Word of God. I mean, we believe it's true. We recognize that it's helpful. We recognize that we are called to obey it. But we stop short of actually allowing the Word to influence our lives on a moment-by-moment -moment basis throughout the day. To letting His Word actually transform our lives in any substantive way. I mean, we hear the Word. We accept that it's valid and relevant. 
but we fall short of taking the vital step to do what the Word commands. To illustrate that, we're going to play a game this morning called Let's Pretend. Let's pretend that you work for me, you're my executive assistant, each of you, in a company that's growing very rapidly. In fact, so rapidly I'm looking at expanding overseas. So I make all these plans to travel abroad. I'm going to stay there, get the new office there in Europe on its feet. I'm going to leave you in charge back here. Taking my family, going to be gone for six or eight months. Leave you in charge. I tell you that I'm going to, I'm going to correspond with you, emails, letters, regularly give you directions and instructions. I'm, so I leave and you stay. Months pass and that correspondence flows from Europe and you're received by you at the national headquarters. I spell out all my expectations and then finally I return. Very soon after my arrival, I drive down to the office and I'm just stunned because grass and weeds have grown up. A few of the windows along the street are broken out. I walk into the receptionist's room and she's doing her nails and smacking gum and listening to her favorite music. I look around, I notice the waste baskets are overflowing. The carpet looks like it hasn't been vacuumed in weeks, and, and nobody seems to be concerned that, that I'm back, that the owner has returned. I ask about your whereabouts, and someone in the crowded lounge area points down the hall and says, I think he's down there. Disturbed, I move in that direction, and, and, and I bump into you as you're finishing playing words with friends on your phone. I ask you to step into my office, which has been temporarily transformed into a room for watching afternoon soap operas. And I say, what in the world's going on, man? And he said, well, what do you mean, boss? I said, well, well, look at this place. Didn't you get any of my letters? Didn't you get any of my emails? Oh, yeah, we got every one of them. In fact, every Friday we met. We had a letter study every Friday since you left. We even divided into small groups to discuss many of the things that you wrote. And some of them were really interesting, boss. And you'd be pleased to know that some of some of the folks even committed to memory some of your sentences, some of your paragraphs. One or two even memorized an entire letter or two. Great stuff in those letters. I say, okay, well, you got my letters. You studied them. You meditated on them. You discussed them. You even memorized some of them. But what did you do about them? Do? Oh, we didn't do anything about them. Love it, it's not funny, really, is it? Especially when we realize that this is where many of our churches and many Christians are. And sometimes we pastors reinforce it. I gotta ask myself, have I been guilty of encouraging folks to memorize scripture, even rewarded them for memorizing scripture without holding them strictly accountable to obey what they've memorized? See, God gives us His Word not to increase our intelligence, but so that we will obey it, and it will glorify Him through our obedience, and in turn be blessed by that obedience. James, Jesus says, or excuse me, James says, obey God's message, don't fool yourselves by just listening to it. Are we ever guilty of hearing the Word of accepting the Word, perhaps even memorizing the Word, being able to talk to people about the nuances of the original Greek and what it meant to the first hearers, and yet not allow that Word to govern 
how we actually live our lives on a day-to-day basis. And if we do, if we are, we're like those who glance in a mirror, walking away, and immediately have no idea who they are or what they look like. James is comparing here the Word to a mirror. And mirrors are really good at showing us what we really look like. And every time I look in a mirror, and I try to avoid that as much as I can, I say, that can't be me. I'm not that old. But it is me. And often we can go through all the routines that we have in front of a mirror and never see what we actually look like. But if we do pause for a moment and carefully contemplate that image, we will see what we will see is an exact representation of who we are. James tells us the Word of God is like that. When you and I examine the Word closely and allow the Word to examine us, when we hear His truth with an attentive heart and a teachable spirit, we will have revealed to us who God really is and who we really are as compared to that Word. Sometimes we deceive ourselves into believing we're something we are not simply because we know the facts about the Word of God. A.W. Tozier writes, There is an evil which in its effect on the Christian religion may be more destructive than communism, Romanism, and liberalism combined. It is the glaring disparity between theology and practice among professing Christians. So wide is the gulf between theory and practice in the church that an inquiring stranger who chances upon both would scarcely dream that there is any relation between the two of them. An intelligent observer of our human scene who heard the Sunday morning message and later watched the Sunday afternoon conduct of those who heard it would conclude that he had been examining two distinct and contrary religions. It appears to me that too many Christians, Tozier says, want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but are not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. And so the divorce between theory and practice becomes permanent, in fact. Truth sits forsaken and grieves till her professed followers come home for a brief visit, but she sees them depart again when the bills come due. Church family, when we fail to obey God's Word, there exists a gulf between what we confess with our mouths and what we carry on in our daily lives. There is too wide a chasm between what we say we believe and our obedience. There is a canyon, a broad canyon, between what we say we are and who we really are. And brothers and sisters, this just should not be so. Jesus calls us to be a people who not only know the Word, but a people who genuinely and without hypocrisy live the Word. Now, how do you do that? You do it by doing. We need to quit talking about it and simply do it. We need to make a commitment right now, every day, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to obey the Word of God. We need to live it out every day. James says, but the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. So we need to cultivate a heart that is keenly attentive to the Word. 
We need to cultivate an attitude that is teachable, a spirit open to receiving the Word of God. We need to cultivate an obedient walk, following closely the Word that God has revealed to us. And if we do this, His Word promises that we will be blessed. Next Sunday, we're going to take a look at the first of the Beatitudes as we begin this journey through the greatest message ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And whether or not the time we spend there in the coming weeks makes any real difference in our lives will depend on the qualities that we've discussed being present within us. Are they? Are you listening with a heart that's tuned to what God wants to tell you? What kind of attitude are you bringing to the table? One that's open and teachable or one that already knows everything God's got to say? How committed are you to obeying His Word? Are you willing to hear a fresh word from God? And when He does speak, are you willing to obey? I hope you'll join me in what can be a fresh, life-changing, exhilarating journey through the greatest message ever preached. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are indeed so thankful for Your Word. We love Your Word, Father. It is sweeter than honey, sweeter than a honeycomb to us, Father. We, we confess, Father, that we, we, we don't love it as much as we should. We don't read it as much as we should. We're certainly not as obedient to it as we should. We're thankful for Your grace that You extend over us and how patient You are with us and shaping us, conforming us to the image of Your Son, Jesus Christ. But Father, we want to redouble our efforts. We want to be those for whom the Word is dear and has driven deep into our lives and has changed us, changed the way we think and speak and act so that everything we say and do and think might be a reflection of Your Word and give You glory. Help us to do that, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Perhaps some of you are desiring this morning, you've, you've come to this place today and, and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that you can be saved today. You admit that you're, a, that you're a sinner, you confess your sins, and you confess Him as your Lord and Savior, and He will save you. The waters of baptism are right here. We can baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we always want to have a time of invitation. We don't know what God might... We weren't strictly evangelistic today, but we don't know what God's been saying or doing in your life in the past few days, in the past weeks. And you may have come to this place today ready to yield your life to Him. Many of us, perhaps all of us, want to rededicate. I rededicate my life every single day. I get up every morning and, and say, Father, I, I, want to just, I want to just start anew and afresh today and, and try harder than I did yesterday and make more progress than I did yesterday. We can all rededicate every single day. Some of you may be searching, searching for a church home, a church that, that, that reveres the Bible but doesn't just revere it, teaches it and strives to obey it. Lord, I don't know a lot about Richmond Baptist Church, but I know that it's that kind of church. This would be a great place for you to come and investigate being a part of. Scott will be down here. You can certainly talk to him about any of those decisions that you might want to make.